Hello and welcome to Eight Words or Less. I'm Sammy. This is the podcast that distills leadership and management books into, surprise, surprise, eight words or less. I'm James and every episode we will be taking a book that has either impacted us or inspired us in some way and as Sammy says, in eight words or less we will try and distill this into a central message. This will be supported by only three arguments or petals taken both from the book but also reinforced from our experiences in the day-to-day world and anecdotes that we have come across. The goal is that by the end of the episode the other person will firstly be able to remember the central message and secondly articulate it well. Great. Thanks, James. This episode, we're looking at Black Box Thinking, The Surprising Truth About Success, written by Matthew Syed. He offers us a glimpse into two of the most safety-critical industries in the world, namely healthcare and aviation, and shows how they have divergent approaches to failure. So Matthew suggests that success hinges on how we react to failure, which, of course, we all have to endure from time to time in lives, and importantly, of course, at work. He talks about the complexity in the industries, making quick decisions, and he talks about resources. But importantly, underpinning that is the culture, the approach, the expectations and assumptions towards failure. So he wrote the book in 2015. I think that Matthew has worked with the National Health Service in the UK since to try and implement some of these learns. What he suggests is there are many errors in life, in those industries, and they have particular trajectories, what aircraft investigators call signatures. He's saying that with open reporting and honest evaluation, these errors could be spotted, reforms could be put in place and stop them from happening again. And he suggests at the end that all too often they aren't. So James, what is your central message in eight words or less? Thank you, Sammy. So my central message, what I took from this book, is that we need to embrace feedback with humility and redefine failure. And the first of my petals that supports this really talks about the importance of an open feedback loop versus a closed feedback loop. And and I love this because I hadn't really sort of come into this concept in as much detail till I read the book. And and I don't know about you, Simon, but one of the things I love about the way Matthew writes is he pulls together anecdotes and stories from, from a really wide variety. I mean, while healthcare and aviation is the core of it, he brings in these wonderful sort of quite historical anecdotes. And he talks in a lovely way about the history of bloodletting, mm. which is just uh, crazy. You know, you look back and you think, how do people draw blood and think that would make you better? I didn't know, by the way, did you know that that was how George Washington died? I didn't, and, and I'm scared of blood, so I think I might have just blocked that, 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 that chapter out. But apparently he just had a throat infection, and uh, the, the doctor, I, am sorry, I can't remember his name, decided let's just take out a quarter of his blood and that'll make him better, which obviously worked uh, as well as you could expect. But the interesting <laughs> thing is, these doctors, that they weren't bad people. They genuinely thought that would work better. And, and the way Matthew describes it is you would have 10 patients, all of whom were sick, and, and they would draw blood from all of them. Five would survive and the doctors would go, yeah, you see, we told you bloodletting is a brilliant cure. And the five would die. They would say exactly the same, except they were so sick that not even the miracle of bloodletting could save them. He calls this an archetypal closed loop because they weren't taking in any information, absorbing it and processing it to improve and to learn. And for me, that was a very powerful anecdote, obviously quite extreme, but you can see elements of it. The opposite of it, an open loop, has lots of characteristics, but three 
things that I think resonated with me. The first was the fact that it embraces feedback, it embraces data. Although I, I think what was brilliant in the book, you have to embrace data with caution because if you embrace the wrong data, you're going to get completely the wrong set of results. And he talks a lot about being aware of signaling biases. And, and if you're doing surveys and missing data or completely or, or using selection bias to pick up the wrong data. But uh, if you're not open to it at all, and if you're not hungry for it, you're never going to get the feedback mechanisms that can make you improve. So I thought that was good. He also talks about open loops being very responsive. You were, I think, an airline investigator, Sammy, right? So you would pick up on this. But he says that now the airlines, the lessons they take from black boxes, from accidents, from near misses, the industry responds so quickly to them. It's a matter of days until uh, they, they pick up those lessons and respond to them. Is that something that you picked up from your days? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I spent most of my 20s studying cabin crew safety and emergency procedures from 180 plus different nationalities. It reminds me about one incident that happened to me when I was flying from Singapore to Brisbane. I was in business class and I heard the audio sounds of smoke detected, which on that particular aircraft sounded like ding, 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 ding. And it's, James, the one thing you, you never want to hear when you're at 35,000 feet. I remember the curtains opened to economy and I had 320 people staring at me as I ran towards the back of the plane. And I could smell cigarette smoke, but I could also see smoke. So where there was an aisle of toilets at the middle of a plane near the wing, there were six toilets. There was smoke, but I couldn't find the source of the fire. And the fire extinguisher, you use Halon. You only use it if there is fire. And there were three crew who were already on the scene. You only need three crew to start tackling a fire on an aeroplane. The first one becomes what they call the firefighter. They feel the door with the back of their hand to see if it's hot or cold. If it's hot, it means that the fire has progressed in the lavatory and the SOP, the standard operating procedure, is one thing. And if it's cold, then it's probably still contained, usually in the waste bin. The second person is what they call the backup. And then the third person is the communicator who's speaking with the flight crew. And on this particular day, we struggled because we couldn't find the source of a fire. But later on, when we did debriefs and we shared that information with airlines around the world, we realized that the three crew who had initially arrived on the scene before me had gone into negative panic. They went into inaction. And the reason that was, we found in the investigation was, the first SOP, feel lavatory door with the back of your hand, wasn't applicable because the lavatory door was found open. And because the first SOP was missing, the crew weren't able to go into what they call positive panic and start tackling. One of the learnings we had from that was the way that we were training cabin crew was too procedural. And so when a lot of stuff is going on, it's really important for us just to be able to make rapid decision making and to yeah. kick into action, which isn't always in line with the procedures. The airline Amazing. then shared that, as I meant, yeah, with all other airlines. And there was no blame. And that, that really stood out to me in yeah. the conversations afterwards. It wasn't why didn't you? Why did you? It was what drove your behavior on that day? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fascinating example and exactly the point of how quickly the airline industry responded, partly because they didn't blame, but they took that feedback, they embraced it, they took the data and they made sure that it cascaded across. So yeah. what, what an incredible experience. It's just amazing how well that actually aligns to a lot of the stories that, that Matthew talks about in his book. 
So I think the, the third thing I would say is not actually from the book, but it's from my own uh, experience working in the organization I'm currently with. And it's the importance of a speak up culture. And I think this is so important because as in any organization, the people making the decisions are sometimes several layers away from the people who are facing that reality. In our case, it might be relationship managers sitting in front of customers. It might be IT people working with systems. It might be people in operations who are working on, on processes. And having a speak up culture means that those people are comfortable in sharing the reality and making sure that that data, that information, that feedback gets to the people making decisions and then the right decisions can be made. Yeah, that really resonates with me. They say, why go out on a limb if a limb is likely to be cut off? And we find so many people in organizations, they want to speak up and that's what the organization espouses. But then there is this unhelpful need to look good that sits in the system. And so if people are worried about blame, then of course it's less likely that they're going to speak up. As you say, you have to consciously make that effort to create that culture. It doesn't happen by itself. And actually, that nicely links me back to the central message, which is embrace feedback with humility and redefine failure. My second petal talks about humility, that, that word, and especially in the face of complexity. And Matthew talks a lot about the challenge around ego. And it's amazing that the different ways that this can impact. He talks about you know, the obvious way in terms of the power dynamic. He talks about nurses being afraid to speak up in front of surgeons. He talks about cabin crew being afraid to speak up in front of pilots because of that power dynamic, because the ego, the pilot is, is the king in that particular world. The surgeon is, is the master and, and you don't challenge them, partly because of that whole ego. And that led to disastrous consequences. But I thought actually what was more interesting was some of the subtler elements of this. And he talks a lot about the use of language for people to protect their ego. They would use things like there was an unanticipated outcome or perhaps in finance, you might said unanticipated market movement or complications. Mm -hmm. And it's understandable if a surgeon has spent 20 years building up expertise, it would be better that complications arose than I made a mistake. But the trouble is that deflects people from exploring the underlying root cause of the failure. And it's tied into this concept with, with ego and therefore the importance of humility. And I don't know if this resonates with you, if you come across this at all. But the other thing that I thought was really interesting is the even subtler element of this is that it leads people to set poorly defined goals in the first place. Because if you don't define your goals well, then it's almost impossible for you to fail and therefore, you mm. can't have something threaten your ego in the first place. But, you, you know, if you can't fail, you might be immune to failure, but you're then not receiving any error signals, so you can't improve. <laughs> Is that something you, you've sort of said? I know I think I'm guilty of it from time to time. Yeah, well, of course, me too. As you know, we met a year ago and I was facilitating a program and I invited you to fail and fail spectacularly <laughs> and fail as early on as possible. And then to make it safe, we gave each other chilies for feedback. So five chilies was kind of Szechuan's like, blow your head <laughs> off. And it just made it safe for us to have conversations around your goals, your learning, whatever that looks like in organizations, but to be able to just be comfortable with not having to get it right. And as you were speaking, I remember before the age of seven, I don't think any of this mattered because I, curiosity was my friend. Um, I didn't have to fail fast, as they say in Silicon Valley, or fail upwards or face into failure. All I did was kind of learn. And I'm noticing in the work I do now, it's helping leaders to unlearn 
in order to relearn and just letting it be okay. There's no such thing as the right answer anymore. And just to explore what that looks like and to share the learnings. And I think that's kind of, you know, if we talk about the future of work, I think that is the future. Yeah, no, agreed. Agreed. I forgot. I forgot that that uh, the, the five chilies, but uh, yeah, I think it's spot on. The other thing he he brings up is uh, Matthew talks about cognitive dissonance, and you know we're all very familiar with this. It describes that inattention we feel when our beliefs are challenged by evidence. But what I thought was so fascinating in black box thinking was linking this into hierarchy. And Matthew references a study by Sidney Filkenstein who found that error denial and therefore cognitive dissonance increases as you go up a hierarchy with CEOs being the worst offenders of all. And I I suppose it does make sense because the logic behind this is that those at the top are responsible. They have to set these decisions and they're responsible for being right. And because that is then tied into this challenge around ego, they have the most to lose if things go wrong. And therefore, Mm. any data that comes in that challenges the rightness of that decision, so to speak, would be perhaps even subconsciously reframed and reprocessed so that it doesn't challenge it. And I think this is why I come back to this idea of humility and why, as leaders, we need to embrace feedback with humility and redefine failure. Mm, Lovely. So, My final petal is about this concept of redefining failure, but particularly focusing in on the idea of marginal gains, which uh, I know you're something you're passionate about, Sammy. I think you refer to it as, is it the one degree shift? Yeah, just making small, tiny shifts and it will keep us safe. And it comes from the thinking around the iceberg. Had the Titanic moved one degree just a couple of moments earlier, then it would be sailing safely by the iceberg. And what's the one degree shift that we can make the next best thing, the next small step in line with those goals? So it's similar to that, but I think from a slightly different perspective, uh, he talks about David Brailsford, who was a, a sports management guru, who is, sorry, a sports management guru who transformed uh, British cycling and Team Sky. And he did it by, similar to the one degree, but he did it by these marginal gains. He would break down any big problem into its constituent parts and focus on marginal improvements to that, to have that bigger cumulative gain. But what I loved about this is he describes that he says that every flaw, every error, and and therefore every failure is a marginal gain in disguise. He looks at this failure and he says, well, actually, it's not a bad thing. That is an opportunity for marginal gain. He's redefining it as that opportunity for marginal improvement. You referenced earlier when we were talking, you know, failing fast. I think that's the same idea. You know, these days, it's not about trying to get something perfect, get something out let it fail and then iterate, improve, take that data. And it's no longer the failure is necessarily a bad thing. It's an opportunity to reassess and improve it in a, yeah. in, in a small way each time. And going back to aviation, and of course, if you look now with what's happening with the 737 MAX and the loss of life, $18 billion as well. So I'm not suggesting that aviation and Boeing in this case have got it right. But if I go back to my experience in aviation, when looking at the lessons learned, have really clear definitions of what things are and aren't. So for example, with the fire, you wouldn't say the fire's under control because that depends on national culture, age, gender. There's so many things that go into interpreting that. It's fire is on 
or off. You don't say the left engine or the right, because according to whom? So it's engine number one or number two. And I guess in business, I learned very quickly when I had a corporate career, how to speak business stuff. So dialing stuff up and demising and executing, uh, uh, squaring the circle or taking things offline with a talent agenda. Business does have a language that really doesn't lend itself to this failing quick, failing spectacularly. The other insight I had, James, was I love using design thinking with clients. The prototype 0.7, we call it. So you don't need to get to perfect. But after you've empathized and you've really understood what's the problem that sits behind the problem, in that prototype phase, get something out, get loads of feedback, and then importantly, test it. And I think that's... uh, Yeah, I think that's linked to your central message around redefining failure. Amazing. And and I mean, prototype is a a perfect segue because the final anecdote, which I loved, was about the British uh, entrepreneur and innovator, Sir James Dyson. It took him 5,000 prototypes before he uh, finished his vacuum and and filed his patent for it. And I don't know about you, Sammy, I think I would have given up after about five. Um, (laughs) But uh, 5,000. And and when you read it, the interesting thing is the only way he had the resilience to keep on going is he realized that actually every failure was information, it was data that was improving the ultimate uh, product. And that was how he could redefine that and, and ensure that he actually came to that perfect or the ideal um, image in his mind. And so mm-hmm. that is how uh, I've arrived at my central message, which is, Sammy, here's the litmus test, drum roll. Uh, your central message in eight words or less, be humble, get feedback and redefine failure. Seven words, be humble, get feedback and redefine failure. I feel like I, feel I can only give myself five out of 10 for that one. You got oh, the no. three <laughs> words, but uh, embrace <laughs> feedback with humility and redefine failure. But you know, I think it was close enough. I've absolutely understood the message. Thank you, James. And of course, thank you to Matthew Syed and the listeners. Please do subscribe. If you've got any feedback, insights or book recommendations, let us know by using the hashtag eight words or less. Bye for now.